Hello. Welcome. This is Quincy Gardner with a podcast, the first of many, to make a certain teaching available to you. I live in Winterville, North Carolina, and I just want to present to you certain truths, certain things that we all know and recognize as being true. We do not do anything that bothers our conscience. No person does anything that bothers their conscience. Now you hold to that thought. I'm going to read a scripture from chapter 2 of Romans. Uh, begin at verse 14 and 15. Begin at verse 14 and end it on verse 15. It states the following, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, that is, when those who are not saved, Gentiles is those who are not Jewish, technically, uh, for the Jews had the law. And so it can be said in reference to those who are not saved as well at this point. Again, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature, or naturally, do naturally, uh, the things which are contained in the law, these which have not a law, seem to walk by a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing them or else excusing one another. Every one of us have a conscience. Everyone, no matter whether you're saved or not saved, you have a conscience. You were born with a conscience. God has given every one of us a conscience. And we operate thereby. And we don't do a thing. We don't do anything that's bad if it bothers our conscience. Now, my making that statement may cause you to wonder, well, why do some people do something that's bad? I know that some are, some are doing something, that's, some things that are bad. And I know that I myself, some of you may say, and I have said it, and I can say it about myself, have done things that are bad. Now, how does that work? I'm glad you asked. Here's how it works. Our conscience is as a governor for our acts or the things that we are about to do. That's what the conscience does for us. It works as a governor. Whenever there is something that we are thinking about doing that's bad, then that conscience kicks in and lets you know, well, that's not a good thing to do. Inwardly, there's a reasoning within yourself and that's your conscience uh reasoning with you that well th that wouldn't be good to do if you follow it then good but if you don't then it's bad well how do we override our conscience if i if i since i have said that no one does anything that bothers their conscience well then how do someone do that which is not good or that which is evil or do that which is hateful when their conscience is bothering them.
here is how that works. If I see something that I want and it belongs to you and I don't have one and you have many, it doesn't matter how many you have. <laughs> For some people, you may just have one. But nevertheless, let's say that the scenario is that you have that you have many and I don't have any. Now, it troubles me to take what belongs to you for myself because I recognize that it's still and I recognize that it's not right. So, the only way that I can take what is yours and not feel bad about it is to find some way to reason within my heart that it's not really bad for me to do that. Let me give you a, a scriptural example. That's what took place with Adam and Eve. The enemy came to Eve and said, Can you eat of every tree, every fruit that's in the tree, in, in the tree, in every fruit from every tree that's in the garden? Eve's response was, Oh, oh, yes, we may eat of every tree in this garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, we should not eat it nor touch it, lest we die. She understood very clearly what to do and what not to do. Satan then came along and said, well, you will not surely die. And that's the king's English. What not surely means is, oh, not really. That's what not surely means. You won't really die. But God do know that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you will be as God's to judge good from evil. Well, she began to accept that interpretation that Satan gave her. And she looked at the fruit and said, well, it does look like a fruit that's, that can be eaten. It's a nice looking fruit. Now, she had a, a good sense of smell, too. She probably put up to her nostrils and took a breath. Mm, it smells quite good, too. Oh, yes, it smells good. And it's a fruit that seems good to eat. And it's a fruit that seems desirable to make one wise. You may have a good point, Satan, since you said that well, it's not really, I won't really die. So, she override her conscience with that bit of reasoning. And then she found herself free to take a bite. I remember when I uh, first committed fornication many years ago. Um, I was raised up in a church and well, among uh, a family which... Uh, my family wasn't saved at the time. Uh, my mother got saved later. But at the time, I was raised up to do right and wrong and things of this sort. And plus, I had the influence of my grandmother as well, and my grandfather and my father and my, and my aunts and uncles and the neighbors because <laughs> they watched me too. And they reported on me at many times when, whenever I did something wrong as well as the, the teachers and the and the principal. Because they had permission to 
also report report things on me to my parents, and my parents believed them, which they they had no reason to lie. So anyway, uh, at one point in my life, as uh, uh, as a teenager, around, around eighteen to nineteen, um, the opportunity arose for me to be with this girl sexually. I knew it was wrong. But I hadn't had sex before. Actually, I think that was when I was about 20, 20 or so, 20 years old. And uh, I wrestled with myself and said, well, you know, um, no, I can't do that. This is wrestling with myself inside. I can't do that. That's wrong. I can't. I can't. I can't. But inside of me, I want to have never done that. When talking with my other friends and stuff who had already lost their virginity and told me about it, well, I told them I had already done it too, <laughs> even though I hadn't. So, after wrestling with for a while and kissing and hugging and smooching and getting close and getting all hot and bothered, so to speak, eventually I convinced myself, well... It's not so bad to do it. You never did it. You want to do it. You know you love her and all of this. So it's not a bad thing. I convinced myself it's not a bad thing. Once I over, had overridden my conscience and made my and set my conscience aside or set my conscience at ease, so to speak, with my own personal reasoning, then I committed the act. But after committing the act and then going home, on the way home, oh Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God. I said to, I said, as I went home. Now the thing of that is, I was not even saved at the time, and I was asking God to forgive me. Why was I doing that? Because the consciousness of God existed inside of me, just like it does inside of you. And I found myself responding according to. The reality of my conscience inside of me. And I said to myself, God, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. Well, ultimately, I ended up doing it again, but I wrestled my conscience again and justified what I did and just found some justification for doing it again. And found myself asking God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, please forgive me, God. I'm so sorry, so sorry. I'm just so sorry, God. And I really meant that. Well, that's how we override our conscience. That's what, I, that's what I mean when I say no one does anything that bothers their conscience. Nobody do anything that would bother their conscience. But the wrong that they do, they do it because they find some way to wrestle down their conscience to the degree that their conscience doesn't bother them. They find some way of justifying what they're about to do before they do it. For the most part. So, that's how that works in your life and in mine. We don't do a thing that bothers us. So, if I see that item, which you have four or five, and I don't have any, and I want one, then I will find some way of convincing myself that you either won't miss that one that you got, one of the, one of the ones, or you think someone else took it other than me. Or that 
it's okay for me to take it because you have so many of them. And once I convince myself and, and ease my conscience of the fight that I'm stealing from you, then I feel free to take it because I've con convinced myself that uh, my need is greater than yours and that you don't necessarily need it because you got so many of them and that you won't miss it. And, or, and one of the more, more popular ones to use is, well, God will forgive me. He knows my heart. <laughs> and so we do it based on such reasoning as that. And that's how we do that which is wrong. Uh, with it not bothering our conscience. We override our conscience. Well, if we begin to operate according to our conscience and not override it, whenever there are issues in which there is something that we want and we want it real badly, if we would do as Eve should have done, when Satan said to her, uh, you shall not surely die, her reasoning should have been, wait a minute, wait a minute, Satan, but God has said, I should not eat it or touch it, lest I die. Are you saying to me that God lied? Get Satan to come out plainly with what he's saying. Are you saying to me that God lied? I'm saying to you that God, Satan perhaps will say, well, I'm saying to you that God did not quite give you all the information. Now, if I didn't get all the information, is there a lie or is there a type of deception that God did towards me? Because that's what it would be if I said that, if someone responded and said that God didn't give me all the information, then a good, clear rationale would be then that God must have deceived me, must be trying to deceive me, and that he didn't give me all the information. But then I go back to his original words, God's original words. God said, I should not touch it or eat it, lest I die. That's as clear as it can get. Now, some may argue and say, well, uh, that's not quite what's written in Scripture, when God told Adam. Well, we weren't around when God told Eve. <laughs> and, we, and some can assume that it was Adam that told Eve. And, but either way, uh, the information that she got was, that she said she got was that God said, uh, I should not eat it nor touch it, lest I die. Now, Adam could have told it that way, which it is the same, pretty much the same thing. Just stay away from it. That's the essence of it. Just stay away from that fruit. And that covers it. So, she could have wrestled with that wording. But when we, when we don't have to wrestle with that wording, all we have to do is just depend upon what God said. Take, for instance, Jesus when he was tempted. After, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan appeared to him and said, If you be the Son of God, command that these rocks, these stones, will be turned to bread. 
Now, I've seen some stone, different stones in my lifetime, and stones comes comes in all different shapes. And I, I can remember some that looked just like yeast bread. You know what I mean? Little round, nice-looking stones that were smooth across the top. And they just looked so pretty. Looked just like yeast bread. Yeast bread. You know what yeast bread is. You go to the steakhouse and they give you some yeast bread. It's nice and brown across the top with butter all, all over the top of it. It looks real nice. Well, his fast was over. And Satan said, well, if you are the Son of God, in other words, he's saying, well, I don't believe you are the Son of God. Prove it to me. Commanded these stones be turned to bread. Well, it seems to me that he came at a good opportune time. For the fast was over, the 40-day fast. He was only supposed to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And the scripture states that when the fast was over, that's when Satan came to him and said, If you be the Son of God, command these stones be turned to bread, because you are free to eat now. Well, we know what Jesus said. He said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It's not, you know, uh, to follow what Satan said just because the fast is over and to prove to him that you can, that you are who you claim you are. That's tempting the Lord. And Jesus refused to do it. So Satan couldn't get him that way. He took him up on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, listen, you know, the scripture said that he has given his angels charge over you. Lisa, anytime you should dash your foot. How about jumping off of this pinnacle? Commit suicide. Let me see you commit suicide. Jump off. You ain't going to die. So God's going to find some way of keeping you alive. That's what the scripture said. That he's given his angel charge over thee. Least you should dash your foot. Now, if he's concerned about you dashing your foot, I know he's concerned about you if you jump off this temple, this pinnacle, and to your to your death. And so he ain't gonna let you die. Jesus spoke the word of God back to him. Well, he took him up in a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all these beautiful kingdoms, and they were. Beautiful. I guarantee you the kingdoms of the world, the part that he showed Jesus was gorgeous, desirable. Oh, it's wonderful. I'll give you all of this if you will bow down to me. Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. Him only. He quoted the word. He quoted the word. Now, Jesus could have stood there and reasoned with Satan or gave, gave thought to Satan's interpretation of God's word. Or he could have stuck with how God stated what he stated. And because he stuck with how God stated what he stated, then Satan could not tempt him. He did not sin. The same exists with you and I. Our conscience can be our guide 
towards walking right in the sight of God, towards living right in the sight of God, towards living right between your neighbor. Our conscience can be our God. It can be your God. Now, if you begin to override your conscience, the more and more you override your conscience, the more and more easier it is to do so. And not only so, if you can picture in your mind a blackboard and a chart or a dry ink board, let's say dry ink, more blackboard because some people know what a blackboard is, and a chalk, and some people know what a dry ink board is, and a dry ink pen. Now, let's say on the dry on the on that board is written good and evil, right and wrong, good and evil. Written in different categories on that board, real clear. And let's say that that that, that blackboard represents your conscience. Each time that you override your conscience, it's like it's like you took lightly. It's like if you took something, a piece, a piece of cloth, and just very lightly and gently went across the face of the blackboard. Not in a harsh way. Not in not in in a skimming way. In somewhat of a skimming way, skimmed across it. Oh, you didn't quite erase what was there, but you sort of blurred up a little bit, a little little bits of it. You blurred a little bit, but you can still make out what's written there. And the next time you override your conscience, you blur it out again, blur, rub across it again, taking away just a little bit, a little bit. And each time you do it, and you do it over and over and over again, after a while, each time you sin, that's what's taking place, each time you sin, you are blurring your conscience. Each time you override your conscience, you are blurring your conscience. And after doing it, I don't know how many how many times you have to do it in order to become reprobate, but each time you do it, eventually it comes to a place you're not able to discern good from evil or right from wrong. You're no longer able to see that as being wrong. You know, those who practice such things as um, stealing, lying, each time you steal, and you're justified, you're blurring over your conscience, overriding your conscience. Each time you lie, you're blurring over your conscience. Each time that you commit fornication or adultery, you're blurring over your conscience. Each time you get in homosexual acts, you're blurring over your conscience, blurring over it, till you come to a place where you're no longer able to discern good from evil or right from wrong. And therein will be the fulfillment of the scripture found in Timothy, which says, they having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. Now, what does it mean to have your conscience seared? Well, if I had an iron and on a piece of cloth was written different things that was clearly clear, clearly legible, that is, on a cloth. And I rubbed that hot iron across it. I could still see what is written on that cloth. And I rub it across it, oh, just a few more times. And I can still make out and discern what's written there. And I continue to rub across it with a hot iron. Eventually... What's written there will no longer be legible. 
and I will no longer be able to discern what's written there. No longer be able to discern right from wrong or good from evil. That's what takes place in our hearts. When we refuse to walk according to our conscience. Because God has given to us, whether you save or unsave, God has given you a conscience. And you walk, you are, you can walk according to that conscience or you can override that conscience. And overriding that conscience will ultimately bring you to a place of not knowing right from wrong. Where you say, well, I don't see nothing wrong with me uh, taking what he has. He, he got ten of them. I don't have any. What's wrong with me taking one or two or three? He got plenty. What's wrong with that? We no longer find an ability to discern what's wrong and right. That's what takes place. Have you come to that place that you find it difficult to make a decision about what's wrong and what's right? Do you find it difficult to make a decision about what you should do in any given situation because you don't see the paths clearly? Have you come to that place? Well, let me tell you a way out. Jesus Christ, a way out. Jesus Christ, a way out. Because God will come in and cleanse and purge your conscience of dead works. That's what, that's what he will do. He will purge your conscience of dead works. And he will cleanse your conscience. You will no longer have that icky feeling of how wrong you are, how bad you've been, and what a bad person you are. You, won't, you will no longer have that icky feeling. God will cleanse your conscience and give you a new clean conscience. And not only so, he will forgive you of all your sins. That's what the gospel is all about. God desires to forgive you for all the things that you've done wrong. And God will change you. What does it mean to have a changed life? I tell you what it means. I'm glad you asked. It means that I get, I'll find a new way of living. I'll find a new life divine. I will have the fruit of the Spirit. I will abide. Abide in His vine. There's a, there's a song that say, has those words. I found a new way of living. I found a new life divine. I have the fruit of the Spirit. I'm abiding, abiding in the vine. Abiding in the vine, abiding in the vine. Love, joy, help, peace. He hath made them mine. I have prosperity, power, and victory. Abiding, abiding in the vine. That's what the gospel offers to you. That's what God is holding out to you through the gospel. All you have to do is come to Jesus and say, and you, just don't, you don't have to use fanciful words, just simple words. Jesus, forgive me. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I've done this and I've done that. 
Forgive me. I can't even list all. And I don't even have to list all the wrong that I've done. But God, forgive me for my wrong. I repent. Give me a new life. Give me a new start. The words you use, it doesn't matter so much. Long as what you're asking for from your heart, when you ask it from your heart, long as what you're asking for, for is forgiveness. Forgiveness, asking for forgiveness can come can come in many different forms. You can say, oh, I'm sorry, when you mean it. You can say, oh, I wish I hadn't done it. Is there any way I can, I can, I can get over this? That's asking for forgiveness. When, when, when in your heart, that's what you're, what you're aiming for. Because it is God who looks at the heart and then uh, forgives. So, just you turning to God and asking God to save you, forgive you. The scripture says, it can be as simple as calling on the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the same shall be saved. How about that? That's a simple concept. That's an easy concept. You don't have to wrestle with words. You don't have to try to get the prayer down right because God's going to look at your heart. So if you fumble, if you're fumbling with words and you don't quite say it like you think you should, don't worry about that. God is looking at your heart and God will forgive you. Just say this with me. Say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. As simple as that. Forgive me. And if you meant it from your heart, God will forgive you right now. And those of you who are praying that prayer with me, I'm going to pray for you. God, for everyone that has asked for forgiveness, let a new life be given to them. Let there be a change in their lives. Let them start afresh. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. For those that have listened and that have prayed that prayer with me, I thank God for you. I thank God that you've given a new start for your life. That there's a change that's going to take that has taken place in your life because of the very words that you have uttered before God tonight. There is a change that has taken place in your life. Look for the differences. Look for the differences. You will see a difference. You will see that difference. I guarantee you that. Hear me well. You will see the difference. And in fact, you can feel the difference in your being. It's as if a weight has been lifted off of your shoulders. It's as if you no longer have anything blocking, which being a block between you and God. For God had cleared away the sin. And now you can talk with God straight. With a clean and clear heart, a clear conscience, you can communicate with God. God has forgiven you. That's what has taken place. You've been forgiven. And you are in, you have been grafted into the family. Translated into the family of God. Translated into his king, the kingdom of his dear son. You are now a part of the church. Rejoice. Begin reading your Bible. Begin studying. Begin learning more about God. God, open up everyone, everyone's heart who has prayed this prayer tonight.
today or whenever, whatever time they happen to listen to this. Open their heart and cause them to be able to understand the Bible afresh. Let their understanding of the scriptures be with such clarity as never before. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord God. We bless your name. And those of you who have listened and prayed this prayer, and those of you who have listened, perhaps didn't pray the prayer this time, but want to give thought to it further. Well, give thought to it. Give, continue to give thought to it. But whatever time in your life before the grave, when you come to a place that you want to repent and you cry out to the Lord, God will forgive you because he will look on your heart. He's not looking at, he's not going to forgive a heart that ain't, don't really mean it. So whenever you cry out from your heart, God save me. That's all it takes. Those are all the words that it takes. Lord, save me, save me. It could be on your deathbed. God can save you. I know that there are some who teach that that's not true. Hey, the thief on the cross was on his deathbed, so to speak. Lord, remember me. Those are his words. He didn't say, uh, if I confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. He didn't have to say that. All he had to say is call the name of the Lord. All he had to do is say, Lord, remember me. God knew what he was asking in his heart. Remember the story of Nicodemus? Nicodemus didn't quite, the answer that Jesus gave Nicodemus didn't quite fit the question that Nicodemus asked. It didn't appear that Nicodemus asked the question. It didn't quite fit the statement that Nicodemus made. He said, I know that thou art a man sent from God, for no man can do the things you do except God be with him. That was his statement. That was his statement to Jesus when he approached Jesus by night. And Jesus simply said in response, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, where did that come from out of the blue? Nicodemus didn't ask nothing about the kingdom of God, but God knew what was on the heart of Nicodemus. And he answered according to the heart's intent. That's what I believe. I believe Nicodemus answered according to the heart's intent. Amen. Amen. So you have that same opportunity. That same opportunity to answer. God desires to bring you into the family. God loves you. He doesn't love me more than he loves you. He loves us both equally. God has a special love for you. You understand that? He wants you in his kingdom. Again, this is Quincy Gardner with this podcast. Your conscience, operating it within your conscience, or you don't do anything that your conscience keep you from doing. You have to override it in order to do that which is wrong. Every man, every man. Amen and amen. Have a good night, day. In Jesus' name.